Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Hope everyone is doing great. My name is Chris. Great to be with you again today. This is part four of A Better Story taken from a sermon series that Paul Hugobart preached on. In this last part, Paul describes a shifting culture around postmodernism, what it's kind of looked like for people to have their own truth, and he even describes how somewhere around 50% of millennial Christians reportedly don't want to share their own faith or even believe it's unethical to share their faith, that it might disrupt someone else's belief system and therefore make them unhappy. Paul ends this series by talking about how it's essential to be connected to Jesus, to having the right story, knowing the better story of Jesus in our own lives, in our own journeys and walks with him. Before we check out what Paul has to say about this, I want to just remind everyone that on April 25th and 26th, we have our national gathering in Indianapolis that we are really excited about. It's coming up quick. I was just at the Exponential Conference this last week and had an awesome time gathering with church planters and people who are thinking about planting churches all around the world. We're excited about our national gathering because much like Exponential, it's a great place for everybody to come back together and be able to unite around solid theology and Jesus-style disciple-making. We're really excited about this. We hope that you check us out on Renew.org and you grab your tickets and make sure to join us then. Well, this morning we wrap up the story, or the series, A Better Story, where we have been talking about the fact that life's narrative matters. What you believe about life, the story that you tell yourself concerning what life is about matters. What you believe will shape the way you behave. It will shape all of your life. We've acknowledged in this series that there are, compar- or there are competing narratives that, that in a sense are battling within us and without us as well. We've, we've looked at the fact that, that, that there is a narrative that, that our culture predominantly believes at this point in time. Western culture has said that the story of life can be explained through secular humanism. That you and I are essentially here because of an accident that happened billions of years ago. In other words, there's no intent or no purpose or no design. And so the best we can do in life is figure out what life means for ourselves. There's no one to tell us what life really means. But the secular humanists say, that's okay. You and I have the ability to define our own meaning in life. And we have the ability to create and structure our own system of values and morality and everything that goes along with it. So don't worry. Even if there's no one that gives meaning to life, we can just puzzle it out on ourselves and arrive at something that'll work. I know that's a pretty cynical way of talking about it, but frankly, I don't know what else to say about secular humanism. But secular humanism has led to the postmodern worldview. And we've talked about the postmodern worldview and really said that out of the connection between secular humanism and postmodernism, we've come to this place where there are three pillars, in a sense, or a three-legged stool that really holds up the postmodern worldview. We're going to talk about those a little bit more in just a minute, but, but just for a quick refresher, we said that what postmodernism said is that it says is that you and I have the ability to make our own truth. You don't need anyone to tell you what truth is. And since truth is subjective anyway, you can have your own truth. You can also define your own meaning and what matters most in life 
is that you're happy. That's what matters most. Of course, that's led us to a place where a lot of people, as they have been looking at these competing worldviews, and if some have said, well, we're going, to value, we're going to follow the values of the culture around us, we've gotten to this place, again, that there's competing worldviews. You've got the, the postmodern worldview or the secular humanist worldview, and you've got the Christian worldview. And as folks have walked away from the Christian worldview that's led us to this place where we are now in the Western world, a post-Christian world. Or we like to still hold on to a lot of the the good things I think that Christianity has has set the stage for. We just don't want a God telling us what life is about. We still want good. We just don't want God. We've been in this series because I've been trying to make the point that, that we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. There are are several reasons why we need to understand this story, and I want to frame these for you very quickly this way. We've already been saying this, but I want to make sure that this is clear to everybody. Here's why we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. First, we need to understand the people that we are trying to reach and disciple. Talked about it in in this sense. I grew up as as a missionary kid. I was in Northern Europe. Now, my dad was from Northern Europe, but my mom was not. And so my mom had to learn the culture of Northwestern Europe to be able to engage with the people there. Now, fortunately, there were a lot of things in common between American culture and Northwestern European culture, but that's not always true. When missionaries go into a foreign country, oftentimes the country's not just foreign, the culture is foreign as well. And so missionaries learn the culture of the people they will be surrounded with. Well, Christian folks, we are at that place as well where we need to learn the culture of the folks we are engaging with daily. We need to understand that culture if we're going to reach the people who are caught up in that culture. But that's not the only reason we need to understand the culture around us. We also need to understand the effect of the culture or that the culture around us has upon us as well. Because again, the the culture that we live in is telling a story that is competing and conflicting with the story that we are called to embrace as those who follow Jesus. So real quickly, just to illustrate this second point, when we don't understand the effect that the culture around us has upon us, we start to follow the culture just with everybody else. It's a lot easier to be a salmon swimming with the rest of the salmon upstream than it is to be the salmon who's swimming downstream, right? We just follow the pack. That's what happens. What has happened is we have followed the pack, and this is not to pick on the millennial generation or Gen Z. This is an observation, not a criticism. And we can't be critical, especially those of older generations, including my generation, I'm Gen X, and then beyond that to the boomers, we can't be critical because we have a role in this. Often when we want to point the fingers at millennials or Gen Z for something we think is wrong with those generations, we're the parents of those generations. We're probably more responsible for who they are than they are themselves. And so we have to realize that we have set the stage for many of the things that we see. So again, not a criticism, an observation. And maybe a call to action as well. 
So here's just as by way of understanding what's happening around us, and, and this will connect with the theme of this morning's message as well. In 2019, Barna released a study. So just before the pandemic, Barna released this study that, that was, was kind of un- helping us understand the landscape of Christianity and, and especially within the millennial generation. And there was one statistic in there that sent a lot of, a lot of church leaders absolutely reeling. That, that many, many as well who read that study, who were Christians, looked at that and said, this can't be true. There's got to be something wrong here. And I'll suggest there is something wrong here, but not the results of the study. The results of the study are correct. And this is what Barna shared as part of that study. Nearly half of American millennials who consider themselves Christians believe it is unethical to share their faith in Jesus. Those aren't my words. In fact, that's the way they phrase the question in a sense. So I want you to look at that word in there, unethical. In a sense, it is morally wrong, believe nearly 50% of millennial Christians in the United States, it is morally wrong to share your faith in Jesus with someone else. And at first glance, we might look at that and say, what, what in the world? I mean, isn't that what we're called to do as Christ followers? We're called to share our faith. We talk about being on mission for Jesus here often at Grace Chapel. We're called to share our faith. But the reality is we should not be surprised that millennial Christians feel this way. We shouldn't. Not after what we've looked at during this series. We shouldn't be surprised at all. Because again, the postmodern worldview tells us that you and I make our own truth. So who am I to take my truth and impose my truth on anyone else? How could I do that? I mean, it's wrong to take my truth and say my truth is better than your truth because your truth is just as valid as mine. That, that is what postmodernism preaches in a sense. And we also make our own meaning. And again, nothing more, nothing matters more in life than happiness. And so if, if somebody's happy doing things their own way, then let them be happy. Don't take your way and put it on them. Your way is your way. Their way is their way. So if that is the mindset, if that is what we believe, if that is certainly the, the flow of postmodern thought, then it should come as no surprise to us at all that nearly half of millennial Christians who've been influenced by the spirit of the culture around us have landed at this place where they believe it's actually truly unethical to share faith. Because they can have their truth just like you can have your truth. And what if by sharing faith in Jesus, we actually make them unhappy by saying what I have is better than what you have? By saying, I've got a better story. In 2010, almost a a precursor in a sense to what Barna would share in 2019, we also learned this, that Christian millennials are not nearly as concerned about doctrine as previous generations are and are unlikely to choose a church 
based upon doctrinal considerations. Now, at first you might look at that and look at that and say, what do you mean? Doctrine doesn't matter? Let me explain this in light of what we talked about last week a little bit, because this shouldn't be surprising either. And this is actually as much a message for the church as it is about what is happening around us. And I'm not going to tell you that doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine absolutely matters. But what we have to recognize again, church, is that we are at a place where if we lead with doctrine instead of worldview, if we lead with doctrine instead of the story of God, we're becoming more and more irrelevant to those who are caught up in the story of the world. Nobody wants to hear about this or that doctrinal issue. They want to know about life. Tell me what life is about. Show me what it looks like to live a better story. And that is what we talked about last week, that we are called to show why the Christian worldview makes more sense of the reality in which we live. Again, we've got these competing narratives that lead to competing ways of living, very different ways of living. We're not going to recap all of that that we talked about last week. If you weren't here, I would say go back and listen to that online, but you will see the difference between the narrative of the Christian worldview and the narrative of the secular humanist or postmodern worldview. The stark contrast between the two. And yes, while doctrine matters, we need to understand, church, we're not going to reach people with doctrine. We're going to reach people with the story of Jesus. You're going to reach people with the story of the way that Jesus has worked in your life. And so we've been praying this month, the Luke 10-2 prayer, where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask him to send out workers into his harvest field. And we've been praying as well from Colossians 2, or Colossians 4, 2 through 4, this prayer to, to devote ourselves to prayer, right? And then Paul says, and pray for us also that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. He says, for which I am in chains, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And so we're reconnecting with the fact that we are called to live out this better story, but in the sa- at the same time, we're called to proclaim this mystery of Jesus. To those who don't know Jesus, he is a mystery. He's, he's hidden. He needs to be revealed, revealed in our lives, revealed through our words. And what the Apostle Paul actually says about that, his encouragement to the Colossians, and it would be to us as well, is found in the next verse that we ought to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders. That's the first piece. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. And then the next, make the most of every opportunity. So I want to ask you this question. What what do you think it looks like to make the most of every opportunity? What does it look like? I mean, if if we have Christ followers, if we have the better story, if we have the narrative that helps make more sense of life or help make sense of life, period, what does it look like then to make the most of every opportunity to share that narrative? to share that story. 
to introduce people to the way of Jesus as the best possible way of living life and their hope now and in the future. I want to share with you just a, a quick snapshot of what that can look like. And if you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to Acts chapter 16. I want to share with you, just kind of summarize for you a little bit of what was happening in Acts chapter 16, and then we'll look at verses 25 through 34 uh, in more detail. Acts chapter 16 uh, details kind of the story of the Apostle Paul's travels. And there were some guys who were traveling along with him. There was a guy named Silas that was uh, traveling along with him, and at times a guy named Timothy that would travel along with him. And Paul was on, the Apostle Paul was on a missionary journey going and taking the good news of Jesus, the better story, to people who had their own worldview, their own way of living life. You can do a lot of research to figure out what was the first century Roman worldview, but that is what Paul was stepping into. A worldview where there were many gods, a pantheon of gods, who were very self-serving, who were quite angry with humanity often, used humanity as their playthings in a sense. And so Paul was stepping into a place where people had their worldview and he's got a better story. And so he goes from place to place sharing this story with his companions along with him. We'll find out in just a second that the, that the, author, the author of Acts, Luke, was along for the journey as well. So what happens in Acts chapter 16, especially as Paul and his companions come into this town um, in, in Philippi, the, the apostle Paul and his, his companions start to preach the gospel. But as they're preaching the gospel, again, remember that they're, they're in a world where, where a whole lot is going on. Their worldview is not the accepted worldview. And there, there's this young girl who was owned by some masters. She was a slave. She had a demon that had possessed her. I know that sounds crazy to us in the 21st century, right? But she had a demon that had possessed her, and this demon gave her the ability to tell the future, to predict the future. And her owners made an awful lot of money off of this young girl. Now, as Paul and Silas are going around preaching the gospel, and Luke is along with them, sharing the story of Jesus, this young girl, day after day, pursues them and dogs after them. And I want you to hear the words that she's saying. This is wild for someone who is, again, possessed by a demon. She's saying these words. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That is a strange confession for someone who is possessed by the enemy, in a sense. But again, kind of a strange story, and so there's more strangeness in this story. As she pursues Paul and Silas day after day after day after day, There comes a moment where Paul is just worn out. I mean, I'm sure she was being disruptive in the way she was coming after them. And and maybe even the fact that she looked like she she had a a disorder of some sort. She she looked as though she was crazy, insane, whatever whatever label you want to put on that. Maybe that was actually a distraction to what Paul and Silas were trying to do. Certainly, it was a distraction to Paul himself because Scripture tells us that he got annoyed by what was happening. And so he rebuked the demon and told the demon, leave. So he cast out the demon. I don't know why Paul took days to cast out the demon. You would think that he would do it right away, right? 
I don't know how God was working through this, but God was working. There's no doubt about that, especially that piece. The words that she spoke day after day, I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to it. Well, of course, as, as the demon is now driven out of this young girl, her ability to tell the future is gone. Now, again, remember pretty important details in this story. She was a slave, was owned by masters who were making lots of money off of her ability to tell the future. How do you think they reacted to what Paul had just done? How do you think people who make money unethically react anytime you take away their ability to make money unethically? Well, they, they went crazy. I mean, they started accusing Paul and Silas of a whole bunch of things that were not true. They accused them of rebellion against the Roman Empire. And Paul and Silas were taken, arrested, stripped and beaten, and thrown in to a jail cell. Now, this is where we pick up the story beginning in verse 16, 25 through 34. Again, I want you to think about what had just happened to Paul and Silas. They had been taken. They had been arrested. They were stripped and they were beaten. And this is what Luke, the author of Acts, tells us beginning in verse 16, or 25. He says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining about all that had happened to them. Now you see the words. That's not at all what Paul and Silas were doing. Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God. And check out these words. The other prisoners were listening to them. About midnight, after having been arrested, after having been beaten, sitting there in pain in a jail cell, probably handcuffed, strapped to stocks, whatever it happened to be, Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, Luke tells us, there was such a great violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, again, I know this is kind of a crazy story, all of it, right? And especially this part might sound really crazy. This guy was about to end his own life because he was afraid that the prisoners had escaped. Now, if you don't understand this piece at first, I'm going to try to make a, a cultural parallel, and it's not going to be one, a perfect one, but I want you to think about uh, a phrase that you may have heard from time to time in the last several years. Here's the phrase. You had one job. I mean, you, you, may have, you may have heard that before, right? You had one job. Now, it's often used to point out when somebody messes up the one thing they were supposed to do right, they, they messed it up. And there are consequences. Right now, one of the biggest consequences is you get an internet meme if you messed up the one job that you were supposed to have. And I don't know why so many of this seem to involve people who are supposed to be taking care of our roads, which scares me, by the way. But I think that gives us some snapshot into what was going through the Roman jailer's mind. I had one job and I have failed at the one job I was supposed to see through. And for him, his consequences were a whole lot more than 
an internet meme that would be made about him. It was execution. If the, if the prisoners escaped, and he was supposed to guard the prisoners, if the prisoners escaped, it was a death sentence for him. And it might be torture before the death sentence. It might be humiliation before the death sentence. But it would have been a death sentence. And so he decides, instead of allowing someone to take my life, I'm going to take my own life. And so in that moment, the Apostle Paul sees this jailer. And he shouted out to him, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, which wasn't as easy as flipping a switch, right? He had to go out and get a lamp, light it. So he called for lights. He rushed in and check out his response. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As we sit and we scratch our head and wonder, why did Paul allow this young girl to walk around with a demon in her for as long as he did? Why did he not cast that demon out immediately? She was telling a story. She was sharing a message, a message that I'm guessing by the Philippian jailer's response, he had heard. I mean, he'd heard. The whole town had heard. These guys were walking around telling people how you can come to know Jesus and the better story of Jesus The whole town knew what Paul and Silas were about. And as Paul and Silas were singing songs to God after having been beaten at midnight, being jailed, the whole town knew just how seriously they were about it. There was no doubt that they weren't just talking a better story. They were living a better story. So they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They shared the better story, as much of it as they could in that moment. And to all the others in his house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Sounds like that hadn't happened yet. Nobody cared that their wounds could be dirty, infected, whatever at that point in time. But now the jailer cared. He washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had become, because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. I mean, that is the kind of impact that the better story can make when somebody else has been living another story. It it was a different story than the culture around us believes today, and, and by and large is living. The flow of culture around us, certainly, it's a different story. But the same was true for them as it is for us. There's a better story. Whatever culture you find yourself in, the story of Jesus is always the one true better story. We've been talking about, again, the the story of, of the culture around us. And last week, I want to reconnect with a little bit of what we talked about last week. We talked about the fact that that really postmodernism, or if you want to call it secular humanism, they, they really go hand in glove in so many ways, has made a lot of promises that have been largely left unfulfilled. And, and really that promise, those promises can be summed up in this one line. If you go after your truth, if you go after your truth, if you define your own meaning in life, then you open up the door to true happiness. That's how you'll find happiness. And last week I introduced you, and maybe you were already familiar with, I introduced you to this thing called the happiness index, where we 
learned that in reality, since the 1950s, the U.S. score on the happiness index has been in steady decline. And there have been a number of things that have actually helped propel us further down that path. Certainly the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the way that drug abuse became part of the culture. But those things were all predicated on some beliefs that had, the stage had been set for. Again, that if we go after our own truth, we don't need God to tell us how to live. We don't need those old stuffy morals and values and ethics. We can figure it out for ourselves. And then came the 60s. You've thought with all the songs about happiness and joy that came out of the 60s, that the happiness index, the score would have climbed through that time, right? What we see is a rapid decline from the late 50s through the 60s in the happiness index within our culture. And so since the 1950s, the U.S. score on the happiness index has been in steady decline. As we looked at this last week, we saw through this Chicago Tribune article, really, the, 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 really I think the central point of the article was this, that life was not better in the 1950s, but people were happier. So many of the modern conveniences that exist today did not exist in the 1950s, or at least not the way they do now. But if that was what made us happy, we'd be happier today, and we're not. And so in a, in a sense, the, the promise, or even we could say the deception of the belief that if we go after our own truth, if we define our own meaning, then we will truly be happy, has really been exposed. As I said last week, what we found instead is that that way of thinking has led us to an unhealthy pursuit of radical individualism, where life centers on me, and I no longer know how to live in community with others. I no longer know how to have healthy relationships with others, where people have thousands of friends on Facebook, but don't have one close friend in life. And so we see that, that there are deep relational deficits within our culture today, which has led to this place where we have a loneliness epidemic, where we're caught in the middle of an existential meaning crisis, and again, where we live in a radically divided society. But again, there's hope, even as we look at all of that, because people around us, people who don't know Jesus yet, without having been introduced to Jesus, are looking around saying there must be a better way. There has to be a better way. As we see the promises of postmodernism going unfulfilled, as we see the promises of the current story going unfulfilled, people are saying there's got to be a better story. I want to reconnect with a question I asked at the end of the first message in this series. And here's the question. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be lost? And in that message, I made this point that we have to almost, in a sense, redeem the understanding of what the word lost, the word lost means within Christianity. We've used it primarily as a word that has led us to a place where we are judging others, lost people. We judge lost people. When instead, understanding that someone is lost ought to move us to compassion, deep compassion for someone who doesn't know the better story. Yes, of course, being lost means separated from God eternally. Being lost has eternal consequences. We must acknowledge that. I'm not minimizing that in any way, shape, or form. Being lost means that people are separated from God eternally. 
Let me show you just by looking at the way that Jesus engaged with some folks he recognized were lost, what lost also means. Matthew chapter 9 says this, 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. There's a better story. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now watch the way Jesus responds to these crowds that began to gather around him. This is what Matthew tells us. When he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Well, if that's not a word picture for lostness, I don't know what is. These crowds that Jesus saw that day, they were harassed, they were helpless, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't know where they were going. They were trying to figure out life on their own. And on their own, they could come up with many stories that might tell what life is all about. But they didn't have the good shepherd to tell them what life was really all about. They didn't know the better story. And because they didn't know the better story, they were struggling to figure out what what is life all about. And in that, instead of being moved to judgment, Jesus was moved to compassion. And I want you to see what words actually fall at the end of this short story. Because maybe, like for me, this will be an incredible revelation and aha moment. We've been praying through Luke 10 too, but let me tell you, that's not the only place in Scripture where these words appear. Jesus, just like any preacher, had some favorite lines he'd say, he'd repeat over and over and over again. That's what we preachers do. And so here Jesus says to his disciples, after saying, after looking at the crowds and having compassion upon them, after seeing them in their lostness, harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. At the end of that first message, I I made this statement, that when we struggle to find meaning and purpose in life, we feel lost. Now, that's not all that it means to be lost, but that is a big part of what it means to be lost, to not have the right story in life, and to not have the right story in life is not to know Jesus. And not to know Jesus is not to have eternal life. It all goes together. So let me ask you this, as we have looked at the fact that the postmodern worldview talked about deconstruction within Christian faith, many are now talking about the fact that the postmodern worldview is rapidly being deconstructed within Western society. So as the postmodern worldview is being deconstructed, let me ask you another question. What do you do when the illusion behind the story, many around you believe, begins to crumble? I mean, what do you do? As you're talking to someone who thought they knew what life was all about. I mean, the belief in in secular humanism and the postmodern worldview is that things were progressing, always getting better. And even before the pandemic in 2016, we started to see that the life expectancy in the United States and many other Western nations had plateaued and was starting to decline. And it certainly has in the last few years. But the myth, the mythology of the culture around us is that life is always getting better. And then we see some of the events of 2020 where we're more divided as a nation than we have been in years. But the myth is still that life is always getting better. And then we see that with the things that we want at the store, we thought we'd be able to go get at the store. And now there are these backups for ages. You can't get what you want to get. But the myth is that life 
is always getting better. And then we see people struggling with issues of mental health, depression, people saying, I don't know what life is about. I've searched for meaning and I can't find meaning, purpose, or value anywhere. But the myth is that life is always getting better. So let me ask you this question again. What do you do when the illusion behind the story that many around you believe begins to crumble? I think for us as Christians, the answer should be obvious. You share a better story. Bottom line, you share a better story. If you're unfamiliar with who renew.org is, I want to just take one second and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're all about. We care a ton about the theology behind Jesus style disciple making and really creating that firm foundation for churches and organizations to build upon. We invite you to check us out at renew.org where we have free resources, ebooks, podcasts, and also we have a national conference that we have every year. And we're gathering in Indianapolis this year on April 25th and 26th. We just invite you to grab some tickets, check us out online and see what we're all about.